Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. And today I have the privilege of welcoming into the studio Dr. James McGoldrick. He is professor of church history here at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He also taught for many years at Cedarville University in, um, in Ohio. And we have a mutual connection with Temple University, where both of us did our undergraduate degrees, though separated by a number of years, <laughs> could say decades, but um, we have enjoyed getting to know each other over the last few months while, after I've moved here, and, um, and we've shared experiences of our time at Temple, and um, I'm excited to have him here in the studio to talk through the significance of 2017 as it relates um, not only to church history, but also to him personally. Thanks for coming into the studio with us, Dr. McGoldrick. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So our first question, Dr. McGoldrick, why is 2017 significant for church historians? It's the 500th anniversary of the time when Martin Luther nailed to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany, a document known as the 95 Theses. These were 95 propositions, largely in the nature of complaints, because Luther, a monk at the time, had become very distressed about the decadent condition of his own church. And he sincerely desired to purify and reform that church. And the 95 Theses were his request that scholars and students from the university meet with him for discussion of those issues and perhaps formulate some proposals for the reform of the church. Well, that, that did not occur. And it was very surprising that soon copies of the theses began to appear all over Germany, and well beyond Germany, too. Luther wrote them in Latin, indicating he intended them for fellow scholars. But the students translated them into German and circulated them broadly. And soon, Luther had become quite a celebrity. And people who had a number of grievances with the Church of a Day turned to Luther and looked to him for leadership. And he became a celebrated figure almost overnight. But at the same time, he became a scorned figure from the vested interest who wanted no changes such as he was demanding. Mm. Well, this launched what we call the Protestant Reformation, and which divided the church, divided Europe, and today divides the world. And so, therefore, it's a very significant event. So, what you said that Martin Luther wanted to instigate reform in the church, particularly in scholarly circles and among students at the university. What was his original intent with these 95 theses in particular, nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg? What was he hoping to achieve with, with that particular document or collection of yes. propositions? Yes, particular document originated as Luther's response to a very obvious corruption. The corruption was due to the activity of another monk, but a different order, Dominican friar this time, Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel had received a commission from Pope Leo X and from Albert, the Archbishop of Mainz. And they were, he was to go about selling indulgences, raising funds that way, and the proceeds would be divided between the Pope and Albert, the archbishop. The archbishop was a spendthrift. He had a lot of unpaid bills, needed money. This was one way to get him. 
And so uh, Luther, when he learned what had happened, encountered some of his own fellow Wittenbergians who presented him with documents. Documents were called writs of indulgence. They were written in Latin, so the poor German peasants couldn't read them. They didn't know what they had bought. And some of them bought, thought they had bought tickets to heaven for themselves or maybe for departed loved ones who had gone to purgatory. And this could obtain their release. Well, that's not what the documents promised. In fact, the documents required all sorts of spiritual and religious exercises, which those people of which they were ignorant and certainly not prepared to perform. Mm. So it was really a scandalous uh, act of commerce with a holy concept. And so Luther responding to defend his church and defend his people against exploitation. So this was really born out of a pastoral impulse on Luther's That's part. right. And Luther had a pastor's heart, mm-hmm. very much so. And where else would we see that pastor's heart, and maybe more at the lay level? Uh, what sources could we go to from Luther to, to capture a glimpse of how he related with his people one-on-one? Well, there are many excellent books about the life and work of Luther. One of the old standbys, been around since the 1950s, is entitled Here I Stand by Roland Bainton, a longtime professor at Yale University, expert in Reformation history, and an expert on Luther himself. Very readable book. That's one I often suggest as a place to begin. Okay, thank you. Now, returning back to um, back to that launching of the Protestant Reformation that we generally identify with the nailing of the theses, what actually happened in the decades and centuries after Luther's initial protest of uh, these abuses that he saw occurring in the Roman Catholic Church? Much to Luther's dismay, his protest did not receive a, a favorable notice in Rome. On the contrary, the Pope was outraged by it, and his first uh, opinion was these were the rantings of a drunken monk. And when he became sober, he'd forget all this nonsense. Well, the problem was he was not drunk, and he was not going to forget. And uh, he was much dismayed when he learned that the papacy did not acknowledge his work with thanksgiving, but with scorn and opposition. And before long, he was in trouble with the high-ranking authorities in his own church. They were seeking to take him to Rome and put him on trial. And some went to the limit of accusing him of heresy. There was no heresy. Heresy in in the Catholic Church means the denial of one or more cardinal doctrines of the faith. He hadn't done none of that. All he did was protest against corruption. And he wasn't the first one. There were others previous to him who had done that too. Just about 100 years before that, in Bohemia, John Hus had done that. And he, too, had not committed any heretical offenses, but he was treated as a heretic just the same because he had the audacity to challenge the hierarchy of the church and to call for urgently needed reforms the hierarchy did not want to occur. Mm. Did the Roman Catholic leadership respond by reforming at all, even even many years after Yes, it did. Many years, however, yes. By the time Luther was in his elder years, he had acquired a very substantial following. Roughly half of Northern Europe 
had become Protestant in some way or other, whether it be Lutheran or Calvinist or something else. And for that reason, uh, Luther could not be ignored. Uh, His rantings were not those of a drunken monk, but a methodical scholar who knew what he was talking about and provided evidence in support of his contentions. Well, Luther, as a monk, was responsible for to prepare lectures on the Bible and teach those lectures to his students at the university. If he had a title, we in one of our schools today, we call him Professor of Biblical Studies. Hmm. That was his responsibility. And that meant he had to give painstaking attention to the text of Scripture. Fortunately, he was able to learn both Greek and Hebrew from fellow professors at the university. And he became very skillful in reading and translating from the the original languages. And eventually became the principal translator of Die Deutsche Bibel, the German Bible, which is the German language Bible. And the whole Bible eventually appeared in the German tongue. And that uh, made it possible to circulate it widely because by that time in history, the printing press was available. And books could be published in large numbers at a relatively low cost. And so in the providence of God, it was at that precise juncture in time that Luther launched his protest, translated the Bible, and began translating other things, and then often doing his original writings in German. And he wanted the common people to understand what he had discovered. Here's what he discovered. He was working on lectures for lectures on the book of Romans, still in the first chapter. And he came to that very troubling passage in chapter 1, which speaks about the righteousness of God. Luther was terrified by that concept. All of his life, even before he became a monk, when he would think about spiritual matters, he became very frightened because he knew that the God of the Christian faith is a righteous God who demands righteousness from his creatures. Now, righteousness, Luther thought himself powerless to, to perform. And so he was often very seriously disturbed. There's a German word, Anfechtungen. Uh, there's no exact English translation, but it signifies very deep anxiety. And he was very often afflicted with that anxiety because of his obvious inability to meet God's demands. But then as he worked through Romans 1, he came to those verses that uh, talk about the righteousness of God, not as as a human performance, but as a gift from God himself. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, here it is, a righteousness from God has been revealed, a righteousness which is from first to last through faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And Luther said when he made that discovery, it was the equivalent of being born all over again. Mm. And that passage from St. Paul, Luther said, became for me the open gate of paradise. He finally had come to realize that there was forgiveness for his sins 
and the gift of life eternal when he, through faith, received it as a benefit from God. He liked to use the the picturesque uh, metaphor. It's like reaching up with empty hands, nothing in our hands. Reminds me of the hymn Rock of Ages, nothing in or my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Luther could have read that, could have written that, and it very much expressed Luther's uh, belief. So what began as a complaint against not even indulgences as such, but how they were being uh, dealt to the people brought Luther to an understanding of the holiness of God the absolute righteousness of God, and thus his need as a sinner before God, and what's more, Jesus Christ's provision for him yes. in the gospel. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, that narrative, um, in certain respects, stranger than fiction, but blessedly true, and we see the ramifications of it today. And, and leading to my next question, Dr. McGoldrick, how does Roman official Roman Catholic dogma compare with confessional Protestant theology today, 500 years later? I know this is a huge okay. question, but from a high-level perspective. Hold that question for just a second, oh, go ahead. because I didn't quite answer your previous question sufficiently. <laughs> you asked if the Roman Church had done anything in the way of genuine reform. Yeah. The answer is yes, it did. The Roman Church would have lost all credibility if it had not made significant measures toward reform. But these were reform in policies and practices. They were not reforms in doctrine. Mm. The argument was that the doctrine of a church is entirely true, is completely agreeable to God, and therefore to tamper with it would be wrong. But admitting that the church was corrupt, that's another matter. Many loyal Roman Catholics were willing to do that, and Luther wasn't alone in calling for reform. The famous Erasmus, who was a brilliant humanist scholar and responsible for producing the first critically prepared Greek New Testament. Erasmus was a bold critic of the church and for a while was very cordial toward Luther. They never met face to face, but they did have some correspondence and each knew the work of the other. But when Erasmus realized that where Luther was going was liable to split the church, Erasmus backed away. He thought that schism in the church would be the worst of all possibilities. The church's unity must be preserved, come what may. Well, going forward from there, by 16, well, by 1545, the Catholic Church had suffered so many losses, the papacy finally woke up and realized that the Pope himself would have to supply leadership for an internal reform, which he did. And several popes would become involved in that program, and it led to the convocation of a large council of a church meeting in the Alps at the city of Trent, Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent met on again, off again from 1545 to 1563. Hmm. There were long years when there were no meetings. A lot of political considerations kept them from meeting. But anyhow, by the end of that period, 1563, the work was finished and the council issued its pronouncements. A ringing reaffirmation of all medieval Catholic teaching on doctrine. But 
a program to vastly improve the education of the Catholic clergy, which had been deplorably poor, and also to purge the church of some scandalous abuses, such as, such as the sale of indulgences. In fact, the office of indulgence seller was, ab was uh, abolished. So Tetzel was out of a job. Well, and he was probably dead at that point. He was dead by that yeah. time, right, yeah. <laughs> but there are plenty of other salesmen <laughs> who lost employment, yeah. That's right. And so, and uh, the, the church was now made an effort to cleanse itself of scandalous abuses and corruptions. And one new religious order came into being to lead that effort, the Jesuit order, Society of Jesus, founded by Ignatius Loyola, a Spaniard. And those people were completely dedicated uh, to preserving their church, preserving its doctrine, but making provision for substantial reforms, especially in education, and not for the clergy alone, but for the laity as well. And by the end of that century, Jesuit schools were propping up, popping up all across Europe, and the Jesuits would soon be engaged in foreign missions, carrying Catholicism to Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Mm -hmm. And um, I used to live really close to a prominent Jesuit school in Philadelphia. You probably know which one I'm talking about. St. Joseph's Joseph University. I studied there for one summer. Oh, really? When I was uh, learning German. Oh, okay. So I had to take a German examination for my PhD. And I, I studied German there one summer. Yeah, I lived not three miles from St. Joe's, and when I drove down to Temple for class, I would pass by it. For our interested listeners, of which there may not be any on that point, <laughs> well, thanks, Dr. McGoldrick. And, and the Jesuits, they had a, a pretty significant apologetic bent to them as well. There was a mandate for them to actively pursue um, reconversion or converting Protestants back into Roman Catholicism, right? I sometimes refer to the Jesuits as the papal SWAT team. <laughs> uh, they were the elite troops of the papacy in the counter-reformation. The objective being to roll back the Protestant tide wherever possible, and certainly to prevent additional losses to the Protestants. And the Jesuits were very brave. I have to give them credit for that. Their commitment is beyond doubt. And they were very successful in some countries. For example, Belgium, Poland, Lithuania. That whole area had become somewhat infected with the Protestant teaching. But uh, the Jesuits went in there supported by Catholic governments. And they sometimes used compulsion, mm. uh, which they were not above using, and were able to greatly diminish the Protestant presence in those countries. Mm, but not eradicate it. Not eradicate it, no. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, side note, we do have a graduate um, this year uh, who is serving in Belgium and interested in serving and uh, ministering to, um, <clears throat> particularly, he, he indicated, Dutch-speaking Reformed churches across Europe uh, yes. in, some of these, in some of these very geographies we're talking about. Mm -hmm, sure. And, um, you know... And moving on now to the next question, yes. as we consider post-Tridentine uh, Roman Catholicism, mm -hmm. right? The the medieval theology of the church has been um, has been codified, has been crystallized. If you are into this 
Confession, this Council of Trent. Um, we know Protestant theology, glossing over a lot of um, great detail, but Protestant theology has also um, been embedded into confessions and like Westminster and um, even the Lutheran uh, Book of Confessions. Book and of Concord. Book of Concord and such. How how you know, looking broadly speaking at Protestant and Roman Catholic theology, open up for us and for our listeners from a high level the, the main differences between the two. All right, today. yes. Uh, there, if we're talking now in terms of Orthodox Roman Catholicism and Orthodox Protestantism, first of all, we have to admit they have a great deal in common. Despite the division, they have a great deal in common. It, all of them would give uh, at least formal allegiance to the ancient creeds of a church, mm-hmm. Apostles' Creed, Creed of Nicaea, uh, Athanasian Creed, etc. And those principles then are shared to between the Catholics and Protestants to the present time. But the area where significant differences occurred and continues is, first of all, the subject of authority. The Catholic Church accepts the authority of the Bible. There's no argument about it. However, insists that the correct understanding of the Bible requires the authoritative teaching of the magisterium in the church. So the Pope and the bishops reserve for themselves the right to give the correct interpretation in every case. And that's where they differ from Protestants. Protestants cherish a doctrine we call the priesthood of all believers. So that every Christian is a priest before God. Every Christian has a right to read the scripture for himself. And every Christian becomes an interpreter of of scripture, enabled by the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. And despite the differences which are evident among Protestant churches, uh, the things on which they agree with one another are phenomenally more important and certainly uh, more numerous. Uh, the Catholic Church is in ferment today. It is no longer the Council of Trent that uh, mandates the decisions of the Church. Uh, the papacy itself is now in the hands of Roman Catholic liberals. The current Pope is a member of the Jesuit order. And he, 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 he I would say, represents the left wing of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, he has not rescinded any dogma of the Church nor could he without losing total credibility because the Roman church has a concept called irreformability. And a dogma is irreformable. It is infallibly correct and must not be changed at any time. And so all of the decisions of Trent are in that category because when Trent issued its final canons, the Pope declared them all dogma. Hmm. Dogma may never be changed. It's like the law of the Medes and the Persians may never be changed. And therefore, that creates an obstacle for the more liberal and so-called progressive wing of the church. And so that wing is becoming more and more alienated from Tridentine Catholicism. And the people who are most confused by all of this are the laymen, who grew up in the Tridentine era and were led to believe this is the one true church outside of which is no salvation. But that's not the way Roman Catholic theologians or even bishops speak today. 
And it all uh, changed substantially at Vatican Council Number 2, which convened in 1965, 62, 62 to 65. John 22nd, 23rd rather, was Pope at the time. And he initiated a movement toward relaxing the posture of the Roman Church in its relations with other churches. Mm. I can well remember a time when Catholics were forbidden to attend Protestant church services. Even for weddings or funerals or anything like that? It all depended on the local pastor in that regard. Mm. But yes, some of them did forbid even that. But uh, not any longer. In fact, there are ecumenical gatherings which are inclusive of both Catholic and Protestant. And when the Catholic uh, Church holds a particular important council, it will always invite Protestant observers. And so the attitude is altogether different. That has changed greatly, but that change has not necessarily benefited the Roman Church. It has instead created uncertainty, and the uncertainty has led to disloyalty because there are Roman Catholics now who see the evident conflict between what their church used to teach and what it is teaching now with regard to other religions. The current pope, for example, has no hesitation to pray with rabbis and even mullahs Mm -hmm. from Islam. And the idea being we all worship the same God anyway, and so therefore it's uh, only uh, good and just that we should have these uh, contacts with one another. Now, that, um, that situation, have, have we seen um, 500 years after what we recognize as the great split between Protestants and Roman Catholics, have we seen any kind of pointed efforts toward rapprochement with any of the Protestant bodies, I guess particularly in Europe, but even around the world? Yes, yes. The more liberal Protestant denominations, which departed from Protestant orthodoxy many years ago, have become increasingly inclined toward ecumenical activities, first among themselves, but now with Romanism and with Eastern Orthodoxy as well. And so, and the momentum is certainly more and more in that direction. And we're seeing even more calls for from Protestant leaders to abandon the Reformation and to repent of the sin of schism. And, and yes, such that's things. that's true. Uh, but it's interesting that among Roman Catholic Reformation scholars, there's something of a refreshing change that has taken place. Some of the most generous interpretations of Martin Luther have recently come from the pens of Catholic scholars. Uh, There's one John Todd, for example, in England. He's now deceased. He wrote a book entitled Just Martin Luther. It's an outstanding biography of Luther. uh, And in every way, he seemed to bend over backwards to give Luther the benefit of a doubt. Then there was a a work in Canada uh, with an interesting title, Luther, Right or Wrong, uh, by Harry McSorley a Catholic theologian. And after reading his book, I had to conclude he thinks Luther was right. <laughs> In fact, he says it was a mistake to, uh, to excommunicate Luther. He had not committed anything heretical. Interesting. And uh, Max Orley showed that what the Roman Church found so objectionable in Luther, it should have looked more carefully at Augustine 
because Luther depended heavily on Augustine and related to what he learned from Augustine. And Augustine, even the Roman church, hails as the doctor of grace, Mm -hmm. doctor of grace. And as you know, the Reformation was a call to recognize salvation by grace alone. Yep. Well, thanks for that, Dr. McGoldrick. And, and there may be some listeners who are wondering, um, you know, where where can we go for additional material from the pen of James McGoldrick? You've given us some other authors. I would just refer our listeners to a couple of books that Dr. McGoldrick has written about Luther and about the comparison between Protestant and Roman Catholic theology. He's written um, two volumes specifically dealing with Luther's influence on um, the the Reformation in Great Britain, Luther's English connection and Luther's Scottish connection. Both of them are delightful and, and rather short, too. They're not big, heavy reads. And now this would be a great year to dig into those. And he also has written a book called Christianity and Its Competitors, um, which deals with ancient heresies, modern cults, and how they line up against historic biblical Christianity, and particularly around the two themes of uh, sola scriptura and, um, and sola gratia, right? If I'm yes. remembering correctly, it's been a little while since I've read it. Oh. I read it for class. Yes. But that's a great little book. I actually taught through it for a Sunday school, and I highly recommend that. But some of you may be wondering, why does Dr. McGoldrick care so much about this stuff. And so I want to ask him a couple personal questions, and he's agreed to do that for us. Uh, first, Dr. McGoldrick, you're from Philadelphia. You're actually from almost the same neighborhood as I am, but were you born into a Presbyterian household? No, I was not. I was born into a Roman Catholic household, educated in Roman Catholic schools in Philadelphia, and the education was Tridentine Catholicism the old school, strict teaching. And uh, I had no doubts that that is what uh, I should believe. It was inculcated very powerfully into me. My family was all convinced it was true. And so uh, I probably would have spent my entire life in that church, except that my wife had relatives in a Baptist church in Philadelphia in our same neighborhood and they kept inviting me to go to church with them, and I had become unfaithful to my own church. I didn't doubt the doctrine, I just lost interest and was not faithful in my obligations. And so I said, well, maybe it wouldn't hurt, I'll go with them. And so I went with our church, and one Sunday evening, minister was preaching on the text, you must be born again. And I sat there rather smugly, trying to remember how I dealt with that, in Catholic school. And I remember, oh yes, uh, to be born again means to be baptized into the Catholic Church. But that's not what I was hearing from this pulpit. I was hearing something quite foreign, and it rather disturbed me, but I shrugged my shoulders, walked out of the church, and thought, well, that's that. I satisfied my relatives. I won't go back. (laughs) But uh, at that point, several people in that church took note of me and they began praying for my conversion Mm. and I didn't know it and lo and behold uh, I began to rethink what I'd heard in the church and I went back there on my own without any prodding and once again I was rather smug about it and 
thought, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but I'll give him a chance. But he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, but slowly but surely, the Lord impressed me upon me the reality that I, in fact, was a lost sinner, mm. and I could not save myself no matter what I did. And I wasn't doing much anyhow. But uh, if I made an earnest effort, I couldn't save myself. And so uh, I asked for an opportunity to speak with the pastor of the church, and uh, he very quickly told me he'd been praying for my conversion. And we had a nice conversation, and at the end of the conversation, he handed me a Roman Catholic edition of the Bible. He said, take this with you and read it, and I think you'll find your help here. And I said, okay, and I did. I started reading it. And then we met again, and I, I had some questions for him, and he answered me well. But I said, I think the priest would have a better answer. He said, well, take your Bible and go ask him. I said, all right, I will, and I did. Uh, the priest was not interested in talking with me about doctrine or salvation or anything. All he did was lecture me on my duty to obey my church. Mm. So it was a very unsatisfying experience. I left there uh, very, very disappointed. Uh, but these people at the church continued to pray for my conversion, and eventually uh, God did convince me that uh, I should trust in Christ alone, and by his grace I was able to do that and uh, become what I know now to be a born-again Christian. Praise the Lord. And in that, that first Protestant church that you went to, I, I don't imagine that was Presbyterian. Baptist. It was Baptist. Mm -hmm. So what, what then drew you to a Reformed evangelical theology or even a Presbyterian theology? I didn't get it in that theology? church. That is correct, yes. It was a wonderful church in many ways, but not a church there were, where there was systematic doctrinal teaching. Uh, a lot of evangelism, and I mm -hmm. was a product of that evangelism, so I'm very pleased for it but not much uh, teaching. And so people in the church were so kind to me, they kept urging me, said, you really ought to be preparing for the ministry. And I said, well, I'd have to go back to school, wouldn't I? Yes. And so uh, I said, I don't have any money. I got to be able to go back to school. Uh, and uh, I had already been back to school to finish high school because I had dropped out of high school this, after the second year. Mm. So I had some funds, but I had to spend them to finish high school. And so, but one lady in the church said she had connections with a scholarship in Philadelphia, scholarship for ministerial students. And she arranged for me to get financial help that way. So I looked for a place where I could go to school and I could work full-time to support my family because I already had one child and another one on the way. And so uh, I went to Temple University because there were classes every hour of the day and night, mm -hmm. and I could fit, th fit in going to school and working my way through. That's why we're called Temple Owls, by the way. Temple Owls, Russell, because yep. we stay awake at night. Yep. Uh -huh. Russell Conwell. That's right, yes. Original and so uh, I... I when, after I graduated, I went into the T Temple School of Theology without knowing what to expect <laughs> there. And 
I encountered liberalism that I didn't know even existed and attacks upon the Bible by so-called professors of theology and I was stunned and so I needed help. My pastor was of no help at all because he was not a scholar. He couldn't help me with those issues and so I had to do it on my own and I, I went into a Christian bookstore and found some books. They were written by Reformed scholars. The first theology book I ever read was by Lorraine Bettner, entitled The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Oh, wow. <laughs> and as I read it, I got thinking, I've read this before in the Bible. <laughs> this is what I did. I had come to understand these truths in the Scripture, but I couldn't put them together. I couldn't relate them to one another. But I said, Bettner had done that and done it brilliantly well, and so I've always cherished that book ever since. Mm -hmm. And then for the defense of the authenticity of Scripture, uh, I read Edward J. Young, Introduction to the Old Testament, because my Old Testament professor was quite a skeptic. He took delight in ridiculing uh, people who took the Bible seriously. And so uh, I had to deal with that. But when I started reading carefully in E.J. Young and his mentor, Oswald Alice, uh, those two, the books of those two scholars really fortified my faith. And I resolved that by the grace of God, if God enables me to get the additional education I need, maybe someday I can be a professor in a Christian institution where I can help Christian people to obtain the education they need to repel the assaults of liberalism and uphold biblical Christianity. Hmm. Well, I am thankful that the Lord has, in His good providence, brought you to Greenville Seminary and that um, we get to enjoy each other's company and fellowship and even uh, memories of Temple University in Philadelphia, uh, 700 miles away from home. Dr. McGoldrick, thanks for joining us on the program, and um, God bless you and your labors this year as we celebrate 500 years of the Reformation. Well, thank you very much, and it's been a nice experience to have this chat with you, and I hope your listeners enjoyed it as well.